Well, hi there, and welcome to Naturally Recovering Autism. I am your host, Karen Thomas, and thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate you being a proactive parent and researching what you can to help your child with their symptoms of autism and their health, and of course, the definition of recovery being to regain health. And uh, I want to make sure that you are aware that I have a free online workshop where I kind of go through what I call the four stages to naturally recover from the symptoms of autism to help explain it further for you. Stage one being healing the gut. Stage two, natural heavy metal detoxification. Stage three are clearing the co-infections and we're going to be getting into that today. Stage four, brain support and repair. And um, you can find all of that at naturallyrecoveringautism.com free workshop. I just want to help you get the resources that you need and understand further about the biological connection to autism. And uh, our subject today is about PANS or PANDAS as it once was called. And PAN stands for, it's basically an acronym that stands for Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorders. And they used to say, and associated with streptococcal infections, but it's been shortened to PANS because strep, it's not always streptococcal infections as they're finding out today. Um, but you might notice uh, common symptoms like your child will have a sudden onset of things like OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, or tics. They could be motor tics where their body starts jerking a lot or verbal tics, or they might have things like separation anxiety or a big decline in school all of a sudden, and especially in reading and math abilities. Um, you might notice a change where they, and I hear this from some of the parents I work with, where they have um, either a baby talk or, or babbling starts. Um, there's also bedwetting uh, and, of course, aggression and anxiety. Uh, and this is all very, very um, common in children with autism. And today, our very special guest, guest who I am super excited to have with us, is Dr. Rosario Trifoletti. Dr. Trifoletti is an absolute specialist in this disorder. And um, he is here today to help us uh, understand more about it and go through some of the things that you can do for your child. I'll give you a little bit of his background. Um, he originally had a, his, his bachelor's in chemistry at Seton Hall University. He became an MD through Johns Hopkins University of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. He got his PhD in neuropharmacology and uh, also in uh, Solomon Snyder at uh, at uh, Johns Hopkins. He did his pediatric residency in the Babies Hospital of Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York City. He did his neurology residency in the Neurological Institute of New York in Columbia and uh, board certified in neurology with special qualifications in child neurology in 92. From 91 to 94, he was a professor of neurology at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center. 94 to, 9, to 2002, he was professor of neurology at Cornell. 2002 to 3, he was the chief of child neurology at St. Vincent's in Manhattan. 2003 to 2006, he was the chief child neurology uh, at uh, UMDNJ in New, New Jersey in Newark. 2007 to 2009, he was a staff neurologist at Morristown and Overlook Hospitals. He is the author of over 80 scientific papers, mostly on basic and ch clinical child neurology. And he has a clinical practice since 1991 where he practices in um, originally Park Ridge, New, New Jersey. I believe he's in Ramsey, New Jersey now. 
Um, and uh, he is a specialist in tick disorders, especially pandas, autism, neurometabolic and genetic diseases. And um, we are very, very excited to have you here today, Dr. Trifoletti. Thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy man. Are you there, Dr. Trifoletti? Yes, I am. Hello. Can you hear me? <laughs> yes, I can hear you. Thank yeah, you again okay. for I'm being sorry, here. Yeah, good. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> Um, so why don't we start at the beginning? A lot of parents who are listening might, this might be the first time they've even heard about PAN. So can you give a little bit of a background on it uh, for, for our listeners? Sure. Um, yeah, we call PANS actually Pediatric Acute Neuropsychiatric Syndrome. That's the new name for it. Uh, and uh, they uh, was originally called PANDAS, and uh, it actually uh, emanated from uh, some observations and work uh, that came out of the National Institutes of Health in the 1980s. There was a group there in uh, Maryland, Bethesda, Maryland, the NIH, that was interested in uh, studying um, the childhood precursors of mental illness. Uh, could you identify, you know, factors that would predict uh, that a child might eventually uh, develop bipolar disorder or OCD or schizophrenia or whatnot? And um, uh, that group, uh, there was a person that was uh, assigned to the OCD project uh, by the name of Susan Suedo. And uh, that was, I would say, about the, uh, the mid-80s. Um, and at that point, uh, OCD, uh, which is what she was focused on was thought to be a very rare and unusual disorder. There were people like Howard Hughes and uh, other, you know, so forth that, that had it, but it was not uh, uh, as widely uh, recognized as it is today. Um, and uh, in fact, they didn't even have a scale to measure it. Uh, and that was one of her first things that they worked on is to actually get a scale to measure that. And, um, they uh, developed the scale. We were able to measure OCD uh, reliably uh, down to about age three. Above age three, it's it's a little hard. Uh, under age three, it's a little hard to tell because children have uh, you know the wide range of normal behaviors uh, in in children. Um, and uh, they um, you know to go forward with that biologically, uh, they relied on some observations that had been made um, really at the turn of the of the, of the century the 20th century by, or even just before that in 1894 by a very famous doctor by the name of Osler, William Osler, Sir William Osler. So he's very famous. And uh, he was the first uh, chief of medicine at Johns Hopkins, in fact, where I, I did my medical school training. And, uh, uh, and uh, he was very, he was, uh, would be considered the father of rheumatology or, or uh, those illnesses. And he was therefore very interested in rheumatic fever as a, as a main disease that he was studying. And uh, he noticed that, uh, or, you know, as had been noticed previously, that some patients with rheumatic fever would get these wild movements, um, which um, it's called Sydenham's Korea, C-H-O-R-E-A, not like the countries. Uh, and it's actually the word Korea, C-H-O-R-E-A, is the Greek word for dance. And that's exactly what these little children would get overnight, they would develop this wild dancing-like movement, um, which is called Korea. And um, in this book in 1894, he described patients, uh, uh, you know, he was a tremendously uh, gifted uh, describer of, of uh, patients. I mean, he really uh, nailed things down, the essence of it. And he, he noticed that some patients developed uh, what would now be described as OCD. He didn't use those words. Obsessive compulsive disorder didn't exist back at the turn of the century. But um, uh, and uh, so Dr. Suedo, uh, capitalizing on 
Dr. Uh, Dr. Osler's observations, which because of his fame were well known in the medical community, uh, decided to look at patients with Sydenham's chorea with their new scale that they had developed. And lo and behold, almost all of them had OCD. And by this time, it was known that Sydenham's chorea was a consequence of group A streptococcal infection, or the bacteria that causes strep throat. So um, they naturally thought that perhaps there were people out there that didn't have the chorea, but had the sudden onset of OCD that Oza was describing following, the, uh, following a strep infection. And that's how they came up by the mid-90s. They uh, gradually developed into the idea of PANDAS, P-A-N-D-A-S, which is associated with streptococcus. And the prototype case is a child who's perfectly well, a neurotypical child who gets a a plain old strep throat and overnight develops these behavioral changes. uh, Yeah. And... um, will have to, uh, yeah, uh, you know, uh, as a result of those behavioral changes, is often taken to a psychiatrist for evaluation. Uh, but uh, there was much more to come with that, and it eventually evolved into pants. Um, and um, we can describe that shortly uh, for you uh, as to what, that, what the modern idea is, because we now recognize that there are many things besides strep that cause this, uh, this condition. Okay, perfect. We need to take a a short break here. It's a great time uh, for that because when we come back, uh, I want to get into what this modern idea of it is and what other other things to look for, other triggers and other things that parents can look for. And and, uh, definitely we'll eventually be getting into, you know, what can be done about it as well. So uh, stay with us. This is Naturally Recovering Autism and uh, we're going to take a short break. Hi there and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I am your host, Karen Thomas, and we are coming to you live from Bold Brave Media and TuneIn Radio. And uh, I forgot to mention earlier that links for today's show will be at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 27, just the numbers 27. This is show number 27. Today we are talking about PANS, which is an acronym for Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Syndrome. And we have Dr. Rosario Trifoletti with us, who is a specialist in this field. And before the last break, we were talking, uh, starting to go into maybe some of the triggers and uh, Dr. Trivoletti, uh, can you? Uh, most of our listeners are parents of children with autism. So, can you talk about how sure. all sort of triggers and how it's associated with autism? Yes, uh, the uh, uh, it was originally thought to be just strep, uh, and that's where the name pandas came from. But soon after, uh, you know, it was very, very exciting. Around the t- uh, 2000 or so, there was. Uh, you know, a lot of excitement about this being maybe the first psychiatric condition with a identifiable medical cause. Um, and um, it turned out it fizzled a little bit because uh, people didn't see the one-to-one correlation with strep. And soon after that, they recognized there were many other triggers. And those include such things as mycoplasma, which is a bacteria that causes walking pneumonia in most people, a virus called Coxsackie, uh, the B virus, which is not the one that necessarily causes hand, foot, and mouth disease, Epstein-Barr virus, HHV6. So a long list of things uh, could cause this syndrome. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, uh, we, you know, we picked up on a number of these in our own, uh, you know, our own studies. And, and uh, we realized that probably it was not the bacteria itself or the organism, but actually the immune system that was doing it. And these kids had a funny reaction to, uh, to infections. Instead of having a fever in the normal response to infection, they would have these behavioral syndrome, uh, symptoms. Mm-hmm. And um, 
as we investigated further, we noticed that most of these patients had a problem with their immune system. And uh, as you might, you know, as you know, with, with autism, uh, many of those children have uh, a tendency towards disimmunity or immune problems as, as part of that. And as a result, it looks like uh, in the neurotypical population, maybe one to 2% of children have PAN. So it's quite common, but in autism, it may be as high as uh, uh, 10 to 30%, somewhere in that range. So it's much higher in that, in that population. So uh, you're likely to encounter, you know, as a, 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 a parent of a child with autism, you're likely to encounter this condition, which would manifest itself often as a sudden change in behavior. Now, you, you know your child very well. They're, you know, their standard baseline behavior. This would represent a, a, a sudden change. It might be uh, increase in stimming or OCD behavior. It might be uh, presence of motor tics that were not present. It could be aggression, uh, which is a big, uh, big part of it. Uh, so that a, a gentle uh, or a child with autism now becomes an aggressive child. And I've heard many, many parents say that the uh, the autism part of it, you know, dealing with that and the behavior of the child with that is easy compared to the pandas when the child is aggressive, because then you've got a lot more things to worry about. The child will under sometimes undergoes a, a fight or flight reaction, and will, will undergo running, etc. And uh, so this is something that uh, parents should be on the look for, sudden changes of behavior. Now, that being said, it doesn't have to be sudden. It can also be more subtle. And uh, the uh, infections that cause autism, uh, uh, that cause PANS, include such things as chronic infections like sinusitis. So uh, the, uh, the uh, absence of, an, uh, of a, you know, like an overnight or quick onset of this does not rule it out uh, by any means. Um, and, uh, you know, we have to uh, investigate each child for the type of infection present, as well as the potential uh, auto, uh, immune uh, deficiencies underlying it. Only with time, over years, uh, does this infection truly become autoimmune. Uh, so uh, it's actually not exactly an autoimmune disease early on. It's more like a, a, an alternative fever response that, uh, that, has, uh, that appears. Uh, Usually, children with autism, when they get a fever, a common observation is they're actually better. Their behavior improves when they get the neuro, the standard fever response. And uh, with uh, this TANS response, instead, they'll have a uh, flare-up of behavior. That's the word we use in this field, is flares. Uh, and um, our goal is to try to find the trigger of each flare, treat it appropriately, and then stabilize the child's immune system so that the risk of having another flare is is minimized. So how does a parent uh, know if a flare-up of symptoms is from PANS? Or, uh, is that something where they need to go take them in and have... And I also know now you, you can have your tonsils mm -hmm. removed and, and have, have had streptococcal infection, strep throat. They have, often, you know, they want to take their tonsils out. And so sometimes that helps initially, but then strep can also live in the gut. And there are different types of strep. Live, like, I know, uh, beta is the worst. That's right. Uh, the uh, strep can uh, it, it will live anywhere up and down the GI tract from mouth to anus. So it, it 
most commonly is in the oropharynx and the tonsils, uh, but also uh, can be anywhere in the gut. That's well known. It's been known for, by pediatricians for years to produce belly pain as a secondary symptom. It's often found in the appendix when the appendix is taken out. Uh, so it's in that lymph node in the colon and also on the other end in the anus too. So you can see it in a lot of different places. But parents, you know, uh, know, you know, I think they, you know, knowing their child's behavior, the key point is if there's something that doesn't look right to you, that there are new symptoms, and especially know the symptoms that are on that PANDAS list that, that Karen went over. Um, and uh, if those appear, then this should be considered. And uh, a lot of times it'll spare the child the needless use of, uh, of psychiatric medication. Well, right, if, especially if you mentioned over time it becomes autoimmune. So if it has time to stay in the system and, and sort of, I'll say, do more damage, then uh, things can get worse. But if you can nip it in the bud right that's away, right. then you can help it. That's from, right. From you want to you deal with this proactively. That's correct. Yeah. Right. Okay. We need to take a short break right here. Uh, but uh, you're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism, and uh, we're coming to you live from Bold Brave Media and TuneIn Radio. Stay with us. We will be... Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas. We're coming to you live from Bold Brave Media, and today we're talking about PANS, or otherwise known as the uh, acronym for Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Syndrome, and this is a sudden onset of certain symptoms like uh, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorders, um, anxiety, kind of manic behaviors, various things, uh, and again, I'll link to everything that we discussed in today's episode at uh, naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 27, just the numbers 27. Today, we have Dr. Rosario Trifoletti with us, who is an expert uh, specialist in, in PANS disorder, and uh, we, we we stopped talking uh, before the break a little bit. We were talking about some of the symptoms and the key points that parents can look for. So if a, if a parent discovers these symptoms in their child, uh, Dr. Trifoletti, then what would be um, their first their first move? I mean, I know they've got to find out if, if that's well, going on, but then treatment <clears throat> options. Yeah, well, we view uh, PANS early on, especially if it hasn't been going on too long in a child as an alternative fever response. So the, uh, ma the management is very similar to what you would do for a child with a fever. And most parents know what, what to do. Your first move, believe it or not, is ibuprofen. Uh, that's usually very effective in treating uh, PANS early on. So that would be ibuprofen or its brand names Motrin or Advil, which are given at fever doses to the child for a few uh, you're going to begin to give for several uh, days, uh, you know, just, uh, I wouldn't go more than two or three days, uh, twice a day for um, uh, for a any given child. And you would use a dose that's appropriate uh, uh, on the bottle, which works out to approximately five uh, milligrams per pound of a child. That That would be the approximate dose that they would take. That often will help them dramatically um, improve their symptoms, at least temporize them. But just like with a fever, it's, it's not the end of the story. If the symptoms persist or are severe, um, then uh, you can take them to your pediatrician. He'll often try to determine if there's a source of an infection. And usually then uh, treating that uh, source of infection will get the child better. A lot of times, though, we can't find the source, and uh, blood tests are needed, and that's where maybe the end of specialists uh, would come in, and um, and uh, we are one such uh, 
specialists that do this routinely. And uh, there's a battery of tests that we run uh, uh, that include most of the common triggers and investigation for auto, uh, for uh, uh, immune diseases. And usually uh, with a, um, a list of uh, half dozen or so infections, we usually find the trigger. And by treating it, we're able to put the child in a much more permanent remission. And uh, depending on the immune status, we may or may not want to do some uh, some treatment with antibiotics. Now, I realize that in the autistic population, some children, not all maybe, uh, have a lot of gut issues where uh, giving antibiotics may be difficult. Um, so then there we would, uh, we would, uh, we might go to uh, uh, a uh, maybe a very short course of antibiotics followed by a more naturopathic method. Now, for example, for ibuprofen, we could use curcumin or turmeric-type uh, compounds or various herbs. Uh, and uh, sometimes there are natural antibiotics or antivirals that would could be given as well. Um, in extreme cases, if we do see signs of actual autoimmunity, there are treatments available to suppress the immune system. Uh, example would be corticosteroids. And then beyond that, something called intravenous gamma globulin or IVIG. And beyond that, there's something called rituximab, which is uh, in the most extreme cases. Uh, that's given. So uh, there is a, you know, depending on the situation, there is a way to stabilize the child, usually without the use of, uh, of medications such as uh, neuroleptics like Risperdal, et cetera, for aggressive behavior. Um, it, it, it usually works. It doesn't always work. Sometimes there are other other things going on that are that are, are, are triggering the, uh, the child's behavior. Uh, uh, but uh, generally, uh, it, it's it's effective in, in most children, and uh, by uh, by uh, keeping them on low dose protective antibiotics, sometimes that or some other treatment that provides protection, maybe a natural treatment, uh, we can keep the children from having uh, repeated flares. Right. I've seen too. Um, I know that uh, it said. Uh, uh, I know Dr. Klinghardt, who also works with autism, many people, doctors that are specialists, are saying. Seeing that uh, Lyme's disease is in about 80% of children with autism, and um, and that Lyme can be a, a big trigger for this as well. So it's kind of looking at yeah. all of these co-infections yeah. that go along, and, and mold. I work with mold as well, and uh, in my mm. program because these co-infections have to be worked with. That's why a lot of these parents will see their children plateau at a certain level of of a program, and they don't get better. And all of a sudden, they're thinking, "Well, what is yeah. it?" And it can be these sub factors. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, those are important factors. Uh, for, you know, Lyme is a difficult, uh, it's a cha challenging thing to diagnose because uh, laboratories often have, um, you know, different results. There's a mm -hmm. well-known lab in California by the name of Igenix Palo Alto that a lot of people use as a reference lab for Lyme. But there are other, uh, you know, there really is no com completely perfect Lyme test and it's a very difficult diagnosis to be Sure of, uh, and uh, also with mold, it's also equally frustrating. It's a condition where it's very difficult to tell if one has mold. The one really only reliable test I could say is is the presence of IgE antibody to mold. If you have been exposed to mold, uh, you may have antibodies to it, and then you'll know what type of mold it is, etc. Otherwise, there are markers for it. Uh, you know, there's this thing called the the Shoemaker Protocol, developed by a doctor in Annapolis, Maryland. Um, uh, but those markers are not really 100% specific for mold. They can be seen in other infections, too. So um, it's, it's a very challenging area, mold, and how to remediate it. First, how to diagnose it. Um, 
But uh, you're right. Anything that can produce inflammation, that would even include uh, uh, foods, uh, dyes, etc. if your child is very sensitive to those things. So naturally, a lot of the things, you know, it's interesting that a lot of the treatment protocols that have been developed for autism have been designed to reduce inflammation and reduce the presence of these cytokines. And that's exactly what's going on, um, you know, in in PANS. Um, difference being that we can precisely point to what parts of the brain are involved in this uh, because the uh, the pathways that are involved in PANS are pretty, are becoming clearer and clearer over time, you know, that they involve certain nuclei of the brain that uh, have to do with histamine generation in the brain, et cetera. And it's, uh, you know, so... So, uh, you know, although there are many triggers, there's probably one major unifying mechanism which gives the uh, disorder its characteristic uh, features. Uh, um, so uh, I would say uh, definitely uh, got to consider a wide range of things. So you got to approach the patient holistically. Um, and, uh, you know, there are um, you know, a variety of ways to treat it, uh, which include uh, uh, natural things, dietary changes as well as in, you know, in, in patients that can tolerate antibiotics or antivirals. Right. I know that uh, everything I, I do is, na is natural, and a lot of parents really are doing their best to stay away from antibiotics if possible, uh, and, uh, and knowing that the antibiotics will also deter the, the health of the gut, which is already initially a, a problem with children with autism, mm, so you don't want right. to make things worse. That's so right. there's always this struggle. So there's various uh, herbal protocols and things as well. Um, and I will link, since we've, we've mentioned, you know, Lyme's disease and mold and, um, and hear about strep and other things, I'll, I will link to an interview I did uh, uh, in the past uh, that, that uh, some listeners might have heard with Dr. Jody Deshore on where we talk about the comorbid infections and we talk about, we discuss those. So um, there'll be more resources available for you uh, on that page again at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 27 that I've created for you uh, for this episode. I will link to that one as well for you uh, if you're listening and you're hearing us talk about some of those other things and you're wanting to know more about that. It's very, very important for, for a parent of a child with autism to be aware of these and have resources for them. We need to take a short break right here. You again are listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. Thank you for being here. Please stay with us. Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and today we are talking about PANS uh, with the uh, neuro neuropsychiatric syndrome and um, pedi in pediatrics, and we have Dr. Rosario Trifoletti with us. Before the break, um, well, actually, what we'd like to talk to you about now is, are some of the environmental triggers that are happening and, and the genetic input, because um, I'll let Dr. Um, Dr. Trifoletti mention this to you, but... Um, the genetic components and then other family members, et cetera, and what to look for and what, what kinds of things might trigger it. Well, I was alluding to before was uh, that there are specific pathways that seem to be important in the brain in PANS. Uh, one in particular is one in the hypothalamus that involves a nucleus. It has, it's called B, the VTN, but uh, for the purposes of this discussion, it's, it's important to know this is the only nucleus in the brain that uses histamine as a neurotransmitter. So it seems to be a disturbance of central histaminergic neurotransmission. Now, obviously, the word histamine, right, we think of that as on the other side of the blood-brain barrier in the blood as having to do in some way with allergies or inflammation. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, we believe that either the um, allergic release of histamine 
or the non-allergic uh, chemical sensitivity release of histamine in molecules like it can produce the PAN syndrome. Uh, and uh, so um, that's one way in which we can tie, uh, you know, uh, environmental factors, things that cause inflammation on a local basis, whether they're due to infections or not, uh, or allergic responses or not, or just plain chemical sensitivities can uh, uh, flare up this syndrome. So it's logical to try to eliminate sources of inflammation from the diet. So if a child is chemically sensitive, we find that out. Sometimes we'll find in a child with autism, they have unsuspected elevated IgE levels. And then we can do uh, precise chemical tests to find out precisely what to eliminate in the diet. There have been a few kids where we have found allergies that they weren't aware of. And just simply taking those one or two things out of the diet made a, uh, made a big difference. Um, so we look for sources of inflammation besides infection as well. Um, and uh, one thing I should point out is that um, you know, we, uh, you find early, pretty early on after seeing a lot of these patients is that this condition pans or the tendency to have a behavioral response to uh, things that other, otherwise cause a fever response is, uh, is common in families. So there appears to be genetic factors that uh, that drive um, pans. Um, so um, we've been spending the last five years looking for these genes. We now uh, have a short list of candidates of, of genes that seem to be associated with pans. And these are all genes that have something to do with the body's ability to process inflammation or generation of free radicals in the body. Uh, they're not neurological genes, but they're genes that are, are more general and have to do with uh, 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 generation of free radicals. So um, uh, these, uh, sometimes we'll see, uh, 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 when we analyze whole exome sequencing on a child, we'll find the autism genes, genes that produce that, that are more related to, um, to uh, neuronal connections, uh, and then also genes for pans. So they're separate from one another. It looks like they're kind of like one superimposed upon the other. Um, and uh, so uh, uh, the, the child uh, can have the, the genetic part, for example, may not be that easy to fix. For example, there's a mutation in a gene that, like Shank3, which is a gene that's involved in maintaining stabilization of, uh, of, of synapses. Um, that's not easy to fix. But the superimposed pans part, which is like treating a fever, is much easier to stabilize and fix. So uh, we actually nowadays look at both the genetic aspects of a patient with, uh, uh, with uh, autism and pans, and as well as the um, as well as the triggers, so we can get a full idea of how much is partly genetic and partly uh, infectious. And uh, you know, with the information about the genetics, we usually get a good idea of why the chemical sensitivity is there. Uh, the I, other I advantage of gen oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, go, ahead. Mm -hmm. go ahead. I'll ask you the question later. I was curious about something else. That, that yeah, just, no, I was that, just saying with genetics, the advantage there is that that's the test. That's a test you can do on a newborn. There's, there's very little you can tell in a newborn baby about the risk of developing autism uh, because the child has not lived their life. They haven't been vaccinated. We know nothing really about their immune system. But one thing we could know at birth is their genes, which are present throughout your lifetime. And they, uh, we, I, we're, uh, I, I personally believe that the genes are determined pan since they determine the behavioral response to infection uh, may have something to do with vaccine reactions. 
uh, and because vaccines, after all, are, are simulated infections or mini infections. And if a child has a behavioral response to, to that, that often is a, uh, you know, uh, is a, a, a sign of, of the potential of developing autism. So what I'm proposing is perhaps if we identify PANS genes, screening for those at birth might be helpful in determining what child uh, might have a reaction to vaccines or, or, or show regression and help us select out children that may, whose vaccines should be deferred or, or perhaps postponed altogether. Now, I'm saying this, uh, only a small percentage of the total population we believe would be positive in the range of 1% to 2%. So we would not, uh, have a, would not have public health implications. Right. And that would be important to know, too, ahead of time for that, that percentage, because uh, if you know that your child is susceptible, then um, it would not be nice to know ahead of time so that you knew that uh, the, the that the choice to not vaccinate would be that much stronger, that you would be uh, preventing further further illnesses that, that you might be actually uh, employing into the system by vaccinating because the, right. there are a lot of, um, you know, there are a lot of chemicals, there are the aluminums and mercuries and formaldehydes and other things that are in vaccinations mm-hmm. are environmental triggers. And they stimulate, like, as you said, the immune response that, that, that there are many people who their, their genes cannot take even you know, with our polluted environment as we just live on planet Earth, to have ed- extra things being injected into the body, it, it overstimulates the system and it, it deteriorates the neurological system and, and, and they just can't take that. So what we'll further Yeah, and we this, think we, that there yeah, you know, there is there's not everybody, but there are certain people where that you know, that's that's especially the case. Yeah. Right. And it would really be great to know that ahead of time. So we're going to take a short break right here uh, where you're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas. Please stay with us. Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and we are coming to you live from Bold Brave Media and TuneIn Radio, and we have Dr. Rosario Trifoletti with us today. We're talking about PANS, otherwise known, used to be known as a streptococcal infection, but now it's seen more as an, a pediatric neuropsychiatric type of syndrome. So if you're seeing a sudden onset of increased behaviors in your child, certain ones that um, we're talking about now what kinds of, of treatments you can do for these and especially looking at the holistic and natural approaches that are available um, because some of these things are environmentally triggered. We, we, we've discussed that a bit. And then also uh, I was wondering a little bit about the in utero or factor of contracting it from a family member or from mother. So if, if, if you know that mom might be a strep carrier or just like I know that Lyme and Candida can be transferred in utero, would strep then be the same type of thing? Well, uh, that's uh, not, uh, there is a type of strep that's called group B strep that definitely has uh, uh, been uh, established for years as being uh, required in utero. Um, we, we don't know if group B strep can produce fans, but it is something that all, all women are, should be or, or usually are tested for. At, at at birth, the mm-hmm. time they deliver, it's like a they do a cervical culture, which is a, a rapid result of that, similar to the rapid strep test you get. And if a woman is positive for group B strep, they're treated with antibiotics prior to delivery. Um, we don't know if that exposure in some way kindles uh, kindles uh, strep, uh, and uh, we don't uh, we know there are other more serious uh, viral and uh, infections that can be transmitted, but we're not sure if there's a relationship yet between uh, in utero factors and pans. Uh, 
but you know there's intriguing possibilities there but that's probably an area that requires a lot more study um to to know um but uh you know what uh one thing i should say is it's important you know just in practical means to know about the environment your child's in now if you're uh, if your child happens to live with lots of other children or going to a school where there is a, a possibility of infection, um, it, you may want to know like what is happening in that school in terms of exposure to strep or if you see that your child is uh, is in an environment where there might be a lot of infection, then that's a situation where you might want to consider a prophylactic whether a treatment, whether it be standard antibiotics or a naturopathic treatment. Um, we can't shelter people from, uh, you know, it's almost impossible to, uh, or I say it is impossible to protect yourself against all organisms because you could, you could treat every single bacteria and yet uh, the, um, you know, there are viruses and other things that could trigger this. So it's, it's really impossible. And, uh, you know, we don't want, of course, the, uh, you know, for proper uh, development of a child, we want to put them in a bubble. Uh, you know, we really don't want to do that. So, uh, you know, some sort of uh, action to either strengthen the immune system naturally or, or treat infections naturally or uh, antibiotics or other treatments is usually needed in a prophylactic way in, in, some, in many of these kids, uh, especially those that have overt uh, evidence of immunodeficiencies. Um, uh, I know a lot of parents, uh, uh, I, I know parents that, uh, that homeschool their children just simply because of uh, they're trying to avoid in, uh, contact with infection, but it's a little bit illogical to me because just for that reason, because uh, it seems that you know there are other ways. You know, if you simply go uh, go anywhere with your child, that's going to be exposed to. And so we just have to face the fact that uh, that uh, infectious organisms are ubiquitous on the planet, and it's going to be very hard to avoid them. And uh, the selected children, uh, you know, can be uh, you know treated in a special way uh, in order to uh, prevent infection. Um, um, there are more aggressive treatments, but those are really more uh, more in the more severe uh, cases, things like IVIG. But those are, you know, I, I don't know if it's really worthwhile getting into that here because that those usually are treatments that, uh, you know, are considered only after uh, some of the things we discussed have failed. Right. And I know that 80% mm -hmm. of the immune system comes from the gut and kids with autism usually have Absolutely. a lot of gut issues. So again, if mom mm -hmm. is treated with antibiotics while she's pregnant, before she gives birth, that baby is going to get those antibiotics into their system, which will start Absolutely. to deteriorate the gut right there. And then once right. they do are born, we don't want to be flooding the child with antibiotics a lot because we're again deteriorating the gut. So being able to, mm -hmm. to naturally strengthen the gut and, you know, through the right diet yeah. and through, um, you know, various things that we can do. Yeah. One you, thing we've been doing, I should mention, is uh, these uh, new genetic techniques to study the properties of the gut. We uh, work with a company called Aperiomics, uh, but there are other ones out there, too, which actually look uh, by DNA analysis as to what the actual composition of the bacteria of the gut are. And uh, we're finding that uh, what we thought was in there is not really in there. There, you know, because if you actually look at the the DNA rather than just simply culture the stool or something like that, you find out that there are a lot of different organisms. So the microbiome is really a very very important area. It's probably the the frontier of the 21st century in medicine is the gut and understanding how that works. And uh, you know, we're still at a very early stage, but I absolutely share your concern about 
chronic antibiotic use. And I, I really, I've changed my mind about it over the last couple of years and, you know, been trying to avoid uh, long-term antibiotic use if, if possible, you know. And I have done a couple of, of interviews with experts on the gut, the link between the gut microbiome and the brain and behaviors, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So uh, I will link to those mm-hmm. in the show notes as well, mm-hmm. um, because that is mm-hmm. very important. Um, and you had mentioned homeopathics. Do you have any particular homeopathics that you, is this something where, you know, I know every child, every person is unique, so it needs to be individualized. But is there, have you find, found any specific antibiotic, or I'm sorry, not antibiotics, but homeopathics that you have found to be um, more effective. Well, in uh, well, I really, I'll be honest with you, I don't, I don't really work in that area of homeopathic. More, maybe a little bit of the naturopathic, more so. And uh, it's really a little bit out of my area, so mm-hmm. I don't want to uh, speak on it negatively or positively. But uh, it's something I don't know much about uh, the uh, the uh, homeopathic uh, part of it, like how you would uh, use that, uh, or if it's effective in in reducing some of these uh, infections. More like uh, using uh, Plant derivatives or, or natural compounds, uh, you know, more far, pharmacognosy, you know, in that type of area in terms of treating some of these things. Uh, right. Uh, and, you know, as I, as I say, you know, we'll have to find out if these are actually effective uh, long term. Some good studies need to be done, you know, uh, with this. Uh, but, um, you know, um, and uh, I should mention, uh, you know, sometimes uh, knowing the genetics of the child will help us get to the optimal path for treatment. Sometimes it's we'll find that uh, there are mimics for pens, you know, too. The things that look like they're that and they're not. And the biggest one that we find is metabolic diseases where they can fluctuate over time and the child's behavior will change in the middle of a metabolic crisis rather than a flare. And sometimes genetics will help us decide that. So our approach has been mostly ge- uh, uh, genetics and uh, medical evaluation genetics to get to the, to the optimal answer for a given child. Okay, and uh, we need to take a quick break here, but when we come back, I have a quick question on that metabolic issue for you. So, um, you're listening to Naturally Recovering Autism. Uh, Please stay with us. Hi there, and welcome back to Naturally Recovering Autism. I'm your host, Karen Thomas, and today we are talking with Dr. Rosario Trifoletti about uh, PANS, or also known as the Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Syndrome, and um, some of the, the triggers we were just talking about, one Dr. Trifoletti, you mentioned metabolic diseases, and I was wondering about things like um, mitochondria uh, and, and anything else that um, parents might notice if their child is susceptible to uh, certain things that, that um, those, those might be another issue to look for? Absolutely. Uh, they, they can mimic uh, PANS because uh, metabolic diseases can fluctuate uh, with uh, various stresses such as infection. A good example is type 1 diabetes. Uh, one thing we see pre- uh, relatively frequently is uh, metabolic conditions that affect glucose. And uh, when a child is hypoglycemic or, uh, as a result of that, you can see a, uh, a pan symptoms appearing, especially when food, is, it's time to eat. Uh, and those things can be sorted out through genetics and through uh, standard testing and uh, if that's a component in your child. And um, those, are, uh, those are really the, the you know, those uh, can look just like pans in terms of their uh, symptoms and uh, only with, uh, you know, with more careful analysis can you determine that, you know. Um. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I do notice um, the, I see, the, like I said, the mitochondrial issues, but the hypoglycemia, um, I definitely see, uh, I hear that from a lot of the parents that I work with that uh, they see these, these 
the, the, the kids who have, you find the, the lumping of group of similar symptoms and hypoglycemia, they can be physical seeming symptoms, but then of course they get the behavioral issues that follow them and they tend to right. be the strep kids. And so, you know, they follow along the lines of these is where we work with herbal protocols and things like that, but uh, very important um, to, to, you know, for a parent to just be able to identify um, some of these things that, uh, you know, like, oh, my kid's got really bad hypoglycemia. You might think, okay, beyond hypoglycemia, do I see, uh, you know, some of the further symptoms that we mentioned and um, might we want to look further than just working with balancing blood sugar, which is very important. Um, but what mm-hmm. might be also bouncing back and forth, what's triggering the hypoglycemia issue, mm-hmm. what's What's, when the hypoglycemia issue happens, do you find that those uh, behavioral symptoms are like extreme? And then that, that, those sound like mm-hmm. indicators for, um, for strep, mm-hmm. yes? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's, that's right, absolutely. Uh, so, um, uh, the, uh, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, in summary, you know, we uh, have to consider PANS in any child who has a, a marked fluctuation of behavior over time. So uh, usually, uh, if not yourself, the therapist working with the child can recognize this. The, the, re, uh, the workup that's required is pretty comprehensive, looking for both the infectious causes, uh, immunological uh, deficiencies, as well as, in some cases, some metabolic factors as well. Uh, we take a very uh, comprehensive uh, approach that looks at all those things, plus genetics, and gets a very complete picture of what's going on with the child so we can, uh, you know, get the, them on the most specific and effective treatment. Yeah, yeah and I, I really am a, a big advocate of if you can, keeping your child off of drugs, the, the psychiatric oh, yeah. drugs. And I was told to drug my son. And if I had, I wouldn't have found the answers that I did because I worked with his mm-hmm. biology. So I find that really right. important. And again, I will link to my, my free four-stage workshop uh, uh, in the show notes at naturallyrecoveringautism.com forward slash 27. You can find that as well to learn more about that. And Dr. Tripoletti, uh, can you tell us where, uh, where or tell our listeners where they could learn more about you? Your website? Yes, uh, our website is uh, www.neurokids, N-E-U-R-O-K-I-D-S-R dot us. Neurokids are us. And our phone number is 201-236-2 uh, excuse me, three eight seven six. I'm just going to give you my fax numbers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and I will link to that. 